So, welcome to our gathering. You can keep your Bibles where they should be, or where Carol just read from. 7, 9 through 12 is our text for this morning. Uh, last Sunday, we began to examine chapter 7, more particularly Daniel's first vision, a vision that he received uh, from, from the Lord during the reign of Belshazzar during his first year as king, uh, and he was basically the last Babylonian king, but Daniel received this vision, came at an interesting time uh, where the Israelites were about 50 years into their exile and really longing for uh, Jerusalem and home, and were experiencing various forms of persecution and uh, racism and these sorts of things. And so this vision comes to Daniel, and this is the first of, of several. So we began by kind of biting into the first part, which had to do with four beasts rising up from the sea, kind of like sea monsters, if you will. Uh, the first beast resembled a lion, and it symbolized Babylon. The second beast resembled a bear and symbolized the next nation or kingdom that came after Babylon, Medo-Persia. The third beast represented or resembled a leopard and symbolized Greece or Macedon. And the fourth was like nothing that Daniel had ever seen. It wasn't like a lion or a leopard or a bear or anything like that. It was um, kind of like a weird combination of all of those animals. So he, in his, the first part of his vision, he sees these things rise up out of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, and really, when you look down in the chapter, you keep kind of looking at chapter 7, the emphasis uh, out of the four beasts, the emphasis is really on the fourth beast, the one that uh, was exceedingly powerful and terrifying. It had iron teeth and ten horns. Um, and Daniel basically watched it stomp and crush the other beasts and basically destroy everything within the vision there. And many uh, theologians, people who study the Bible basically, um, feel that that fourth beast, is, fourth beast is represented by the Roman Empire, which came after Macedon or Greece. Um, and in many respects, it does... Um, kind of, it, it, in many respects, it does kind of represent Rome. Rome was exceedingly powerful and strong and all of those things and uh, devastating. It basically did chew up and spit out what was left of the others. Um, but I, I don't believe that, uh, that it can be Rome because uh, that wouldn't fit into the apocalyptic genre because apocalyptic, as we talked about last week, means end times. So it's not just out in the future. It has to do with the last things in the last days and all of that. So that's kind of where we were last week and what we looked at, what we broke down. This morning we're going to uh, take a look at what he saw next in his vision. So he had the beasts, and now he transitions into something else that he sees in his vision. And I've entitled this message, um, The Ancient of Days. Yes, that is the best Google artwork I could find to try to capture I think it, it's pretty accurate. 
It probably falls pretty short, to be honest with you. But uh, yeah, so we're going to be looking at the Ancient of Days. That's this next section. So let's pray, and then we'll get to work. Lord in heaven, we first of all acknowledge your presence, and we say um, thank you for ordaining church and even these gatherings. Uh, It's such a blessing to be able to come and fellowship with one another and spend a little bit of time in your word and singing songs to you and in prayer, fellowship, just all of it. It's great. Um, I pray that uh, because we live in a land where these things are uh, free to us and and easy to do, I just pray that we wouldn't take those things for granted. There could come a day where uh, where it's not as easy to gather and do these things as it uh, is in other countries. And so um, I just pray that we would thoroughly value and enjoy this time that we have each Sunday. And uh, we also ask that you would teach us this morning, uh, reveal to us your word. And we're going to be looking at a uh, pretty, pretty incredible passage, Lord, and, uh, and so we don't want to miss uh, what you have for us here today and what is represented in this text. And uh, so teach us, train us this morning. Uh, we pray that the Holy Spirit would not only be here, but in our hearts and moving in power uh, to take the word and apply it and sanctify us and make us a little bit more like Jesus. So we give you this time, we humble ourselves, and we want to exalt you now. We pray that we would hear from you, not from Phil or uh, anything or anyone other than you, Jesus. You are our pastor and shepherd, and so teach us today. We give you our hearts and our focus, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, guys, so we're going to begin at 9a. I've had to take uh, some of these verses and divide them up into A, Bs, and Cs because um, that's just the way that I analyze things and look at things. So 9a, it says, as I looked, so he's, he's engaged in the vision and he's looking into the vision and he's seeing the beasts in these things, and so he's still looking as I looked. He noticed thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. So you transition from seeing these four beasts come up out of the sea, and, and you know, it, it, it probably looked like a hurricane. You've got all of this chaos, and then you've got these ugly sea monsters, scary, 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 and then boom, he transitions into this next part where he sees these thrones that are placed in the Ancient of Days, which is a phrase or title for God, take his seat. So what a, what a contrast from the chaos and turmoil and ugliness to, wow, this other moment where we don't have the chaos or sea monsters, we have God himself taking his seat and these thrones being placed. Let's talk about this for a moment. Thrones were placed... Um, Imagine an ancient courtroom. Um, They often featured uh, a large throne in the middle, uh, and then that throne would be flanked by, on both sides, smaller thrones. So you'd have one primary chair, if you will, in the middle, and then you would have smaller chairs along the sides. Um, It would be similar to in our modern-day courtrooms where you have kind of an exalted, lifted platform where the judge is, and then you have, 
you know, at a lower level, you have chairs on each side where witnesses come forward, and then you have on each side, you have jurors. Anyone ever gotten jury duty, been blessed with that wonderful? Yeah, yeah. I, I had one. It was for a, uh, a robbery thing, and, uh, and they were interviewing people uh, for it. Uh, you know, you go down there, and you're there all day to find out whether you're in or not. If you act stupid, you might get out of it. Um, so I was sitting there, and of course, you know, I love Jesus. I'm ser- I got picked. I got appointed as the chair. Um, but there was a guy next to me who pulled the Jehovah's Witness routine because apparently they, they can't do those things. Uh, wow. Yeah, so I was like, okay, so next time I'm a JW. Um, I was like, he can do it if I can do it. Any- you know, but I remember that setting and, and how sobering and serious it was. Um, and you've got this judge there, and, and, and uh, he's kind of intimidating. You know, it's like I didn't really want to make eye contact, even though I wasn't the one on, on trial. But it was just a bizarre thing. It was neat. And so um, you can envision what's playing out here in this vision in that way. You have these smaller thrones, and then you have this primary throne um, and uh, just as it is today, uh, when court was about to begin, uh, and in this vision is what we see here, as court's about to begin, you know, um, you've got the judge who takes his seat, and in the ancient days, it usually wasn't a judge, it would have been the king. Um, you know, you can look at the, uh, and you can look at the historical letters, kings and chronicles and stuff like that, and, and you'll find that, uh, King Solomon himself was kind of like the primary judge over his nation. And uh, so in the ancient setting, you wouldn't really have a judge in the middle. You would have the king who serves as a judge. And then you would have his high officials or what have you taking seats on the, the smaller thrones, if you will. And that's basically what Daniel envisions here. But this is at a whole another level. This isn't, this isn't earthly court. This isn't, you know... Judge Wapner at three, you know, whatever, remember Rain Man? This isn't anything like that. This isn't people's court. That is, this, this is so far beyond. This transcends anything that you would see here on earth. But it's similar. It's similar. He basically saw the divine or heavenly courtroom as well as the divine judge uh, take his seat. The Ancient of Days, the interesting title for God. It's used only three times in Scripture, and all three are here in Daniel chapter 7. Um, isn't that interesting? I thought that I would find that in other passages, and it's, it's all here in Daniel 7. It's three times that it's used. And, and what it does is, you know, the names of God usually denote or point to some character quality or attribute uh, some ability of God, if you will, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. So that has to do. That name has to do with God as a provider, um, and this, it's kind of the same thing here. Not in the provider, but Ancient of Days asserts or means eternal. So when you want to think of God as being eternal, and you want to ascribe or appoint a name for that, you would call him the Ancient of Days. You could say the Eternal God. But the way that they did it back in the old days was they called him the Ancient of Days. So that has to do with his eternality. God is eternal. He predates time. Um, He was 
the way that, to look at it, ancient of, ancient of days basically means before days. And days, uh, you know, days has to do with time, right? You have seasons and all these things. And so he is the ancient of days, which means he is before days. He predates days and time, thus making him the ancient of days. So it has to do with his eternality. So what we see here is we have thrones placed, we have the primary throne placed, and we have the God who has always been, who doesn't have a start point and doesn't have an ending point. The eternal God is taking his seat. Very interesting. Let's talk about that a little bit more. Took his seat. The, the taking of his seat, as we see in this text, it signifies that he is ready to evaluate evidence, that he is ready to make a verdict, that he is ready to uh, put forth a punishment, if you will. He's ready. Taking a seat means he's ready to do court. Court is in session. That's the way that you want to look at that. Uh, Psalm 82 verse 1 points to this. It says, God has taken his place in the divine assembly. He judges among the heavenly beings. So that appears to be a direct reference to this future moment. Um, I like how Sinclair Ferguson, he's a, a scholar and a Bible teacher professor that I really like and appreciate. I like how he described this scene. He wrote, God has never compromised his righteous dealings in establishing his kingdom as humans have in gaining their kingdoms. Human kingdoms are always caught up in feverish activity, military and or diplomatic, but the Ancient of Days is seated. He is never taken by surprise, never undecided, never in a panic about his world. He reigns, period, in the face of the terrible havoc that people are able to cause. Daniel is reminded that ultimate authority does not reside in Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, or Rome. It is in the hands of God. So I love that description of what's playing out here. You've got the turmoil of the beasts, which represent the turmoil of the world, the lack of power, the lack of sovereignty, the lack of eternality and control. And then here we are given one aspect of this vision that shows all of those things that are in place. There's no chaos, total control, total sovereignty. God isn't trying to fix what's playing out in His world. He's in total and absolute control. It's all under His feet, if you will. And so that's what's depicted here. In verse 9b, Daniel describes the Ancient of Days' appearance. Uh, 9b, His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. That's pretty awesome. White as snow. In the Bible, certain colors represent certain things. And white uh, represents things like purity and holiness. Uh, the color black represents death and those sorts of things. So colors have meaning in Scripture. Colors are employed to point to something in particular. So whenever you see white in Scripture, it usually has to do with righteousness or purity or holiness or something like that. And so we can see here that God's clothing is as white as snow, which tells us that He is pure and holy, but 
You know, when the snow falls before it's tainted by anything else, it's the purest white. It's a white that, uh, that we often try to achieve with our laundry but can never get there with the best bleach. And, and so the idea of being white as snow tells us that this is a white that is so pure and so brilliant and so perfect. I'm reminded of the transfiguration where Peter, James, and John were given a glimpse of Jesus' divine glory. I don't know if you're familiar with that moment, but during Jesus' ministry, you know, there was a moment where he and these guys went up on a mountain, and he was transfigured, supernaturally transfigured, to show his glory, the glory that he had left, that he had stepped away from, that he had condescended and left behind. And, and his clothing is described in a similar way, or his appearance was, Matthew uh, 17.2 says, His face shone like the sun. So his face was so bright and brilliant that it was blinding. You know how it is when you look into the sun, right? It's like you turn away and you see spots for like 20 minutes. His face was like that. And it says his clothes became white as light. The, that's the purest white. The snow and the light, that is, those are the purest forms of white that you can have. And we see Jesus here taking on that same quality as, as the Father does here. The Son takes on the same quality as the Father here, this brilliant white. Why? Because they are both holy, because they are both perfectly pure, because they are both perfectly righteous. Incredibly, true believers, and, and they are described in Revelation 3.5 as those who persevere in the faith. One of the ways that you can know if you are a true believer is that you persevere in the faith. You keep, you know, we would say you keep the faith. You stay a believer from this point to this point to this point to this point to this point. It doesn't mean that you don't wrestle with doubts and things like that, but for the most part, from the moment you're saved, when you're born again, to the moment that you pass and go with the Lord, you've been a Christian the whole time. You've always believed in Jesus. You've always tried to yield to Him and submit to Him and all of that. It's not just a verbal thing. It's also, it also comes out in your lifestyle and all of that. But it, it basically says those who are true believers, those who persevere in the faith, will receive white robes. So Christians will be arrayed like their Heavenly Father and like their Messiah. So that's pretty cool. We'll have those white robes. And uh, there's not going to be any laundry problems or anything like that in glory, so you're not going to worry about it. Another description that's given, the hair of his head was like pure wool. And I like what Proverbs uh, 16.31 says, kind of pointing to this. It says, a gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. You know, some of us are doing all that we can to eliminate the gray hair on our head. Uh, you know, Clairol, uh, you know, I don't know. I've tried Just for Men. I ended up looking like Bluto one time from Popeye when I did it. It just didn't look right. I need to just let it go, you know. And uh, the thing is, is when I grow a beard, it's like, it's like just silver. And then the rest of this is not quite there. But Scripture points to a gray head as being really a sign of of righteousness in these sorts of things. And I thought, how cool is that? You know, we, we associate wisdom with gray hair, but I, I don't think that you can just say that everyone who has a head of gray hair is wise. Uh, you know, people wouldn't be. Uh, many gray-haired uh, people blowing every dime they've ever made in casinos, not a sign of wisdom. A little casino plays one thing, but, you know, going up there and, I put the house up, you know, 
probably don't have any wisdom. Uh, I put 10 bucks up. That's, I've, been to, I've been to these casinos one time, and every dollar went in was painful. You know, it was like, oh, please, you know, just something happened. Gone, gone, gone. Ten bucks later, I was so filled with shame. Um, Ten bucks, what a cheapskate. Uh, so, gray head associated with righteousness. And now, now think about it. It's a proverb. It, it, it can be this way. It's not a, a, you know, an absolute truth that everyone who has a gray head has wisdom or is righteous. But back in these days, old age and gray hair were considered rewards to the righteous. Uh, they figured if a person lived long enough to acquire a full head of gray hair, they must have done something right to please God. Because people didn't live past 40, 45, whatever. I was talking to my wife about this. She says, I see old people in Scripture all the time. Well, yeah, but it's not as common as it was today. You didn't have the medical advancements and things back then. If you had an appendicitis back then, you were dead. Tonsillitis, dead. Serious enough flu, dead. You know, we, we get saved from stuff like this all the time today. But back then, man, a splinter could mean amputation. I mean, it was terrible. I don't know. I don't know if I'd go that far. But if you made it to the point in age, 55, 60, I don't know, some of us gray earlier, but, you know, you were considered, if you had gray hair, you were considered, wow, you're blessed by God. You must be right with Him and doing the right thing because He's prolonging and blessing your life. That was the logic back then. And as I said, gray hair also symbolized wisdom. In our text, this idea of a hair of, of, that is like pure wool, it denotes righteousness and wisdom. And at a, at a level that, that transcends anything that we can get down on this side of glory. So his head, God's head, the Ancient of Days head of pure wool, hair like that, it does point to righteousness and wisdom, perfection, those kinds of things. He is perfectly righteous, right? He is all wise. And, and what does that tell us? When we look at his appearance here, here's, what, here's the point. When we see the Ancient of Days take His throne, take His seat, we know that He's ready to judge. When we are given a glimpse of His appearance, okay, He's clothed in perfect white. He's got this perfect head of hair that symbolizes righteousness. What that tells us is that His ruling and His judgment is going to be precise. It's going to be perfect. There's not going to be any doubt about the judgment that He makes in what we're about to see here. Okay, so that's why the appearance is important. That's why the detail is here. We have a judge who is righteous, who is holy, who bears the attributes of that in a physical way and has them on the inside and is totally going to make a right and accurate judgment. And I would say, because I, I know how I think in process, sometimes, I just put it out there, hopefully I don't get struck down, but sometimes I, I don't feel as if and think that God's judgments are perfect. Sometimes I, I question those things um, in the day-to-day -day grind. Uh, great example is, is, you know, this new friend that I have who's a wedding coordinator who I'm going to work with on a job, but I don't know now. But she's in her, you know, middle 20s or whatever, and this week I was able to connect the judgments of God with her ailing health. I mean, she's 27 years old and has a lethal brain tumor. And, you know, and they got most of it out and all that, but she lost her hearing in her left ear. She has facial paralysis and all of these things. And so, you know, of course, I, I understand, I think, in some sense, God's grace and mercy and 
the thorn thing and, you know, my powers made sufficient or my powers made perfect and weakness. I get all that. I got the lingo. I, got, I know the scriptures, but sometimes I just say, really? This is a 27-year-old woman with... And I, I don't know if we want to tie what's happening or to God's judgments, but in any case, I do. And I say, wow, this is a 27-year-old woman who has little rugrats, ankle biters running around the house. She could lose her life. Don't we at times question His judgments or His will, His providence? We do. We do, but our questioning and doubting doesn't make who He is and what He does any less perfect or righteous. And, and we use human reasoning, and we do not have the mind of God. We, we can't see all that He sees. We don't understand all that He understands. We don't know. In fact, we pray that through those kinds of things that something good comes out of it, that maybe some people get saved or sanctified or something, right? We can't see it, but we pray for something good to come out of it. We don't know the outcome. He knows it 100%. He knows it 100%. Also, Jesus is described in this same way in terms of physical appearance in Revelation 1.14. And it's, it's really interesting that that the description that's given here to Jesus comes right before he lays down some judgment on seven churches that have gotten off track, some worse than others. Uh, it says, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. What does that tell us? That means that Jesus's, it tells us that his judgments and corrections that are going out to those seven churches, Laodicea and those churches, Philadelphia, Ephesus. It's accurate. It's precise. It comes with wisdom. And that's what we're seeing here in this amazing vision. In verses 9c and 10a, Daniel described the ancient of days throne. He describes his throne. Look at it with me. 9c, his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. I mean, that's a lot of fire. I've had a couple of episodes with my barbecue that went down like this. This is like, right, have you ever come out like in your gas grills fully engulfed and your tri-tip looks like a piece of, you know, it transitioned from tri-tip to stinking jerky? Yeah, it almost happened to me last night. Well, that can happen too. This is at a whole nother level here. We're talking about fiery flames around this, around this, this throne of his, and, and then wheels that are burning with fire. What is going on here? And then 10a, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. So you've got fire around the throne, you've got wheels of fire, and then you've got fire blowing out from it. Pretty incredible. Let's analyze it. His throne was fiery flames, first phrase. The seat on which God sat seemed to be fire. It seems to be a throne of fire, which is amazing because if any of us attempted to do anything like this, we would be immediately burned and consumed. Apparently, God can sit on fire and it has absolutely no effect on Him, none. But I think really what we're seeing here is the brilliance and splendidness of His throne. His glory is so um, awesome and so amazing that it comes out like fire. It's pretty awesome. 
Now, fire can symbolize various things in Scripture, just as you know, white and these colors can. It appears as a metaphor for affliction in Isaiah 48.10, um, you know, almost like um, you know, you're suffering uh, in such a way that you, you feel like you're being burned up in life or whatever. It's kind of an affliction that feels like you're being burned or something of that nature. It symbolizes chastening and, punit- and the punitive righteousness of God. We see that in Ezekiel 1, 13 through 14. And it symbolizes the indignation of God, which devours His enemies. Uh, Hebrews 10, 27 and Revelation 19, 11 through 12. So fire symbolizes various things. And here in our text, the figure of speech is used in all of these senses. It can have to do with righteous indignation and, you know, the affliction that's about to be put upon the subject that we're going to look at, his chastening and punitive righteousness, the punishment coming from him. So fire is associated with those things here at the throne. And it says, its wheels were burning fire. God's throne appeared to be more like a chariot than an actual throne or seat. Uh, in ancient culture back then, king's thrones often had wheels and can be rolled around. So that's the idea here. And its wheels were also on fire. So you have this, these wheels that are on fire. So it's pretty incredible. Uh, back in 1981, a movie called Chariots of Fire came out. Uh, it won a, a bunch of awards, I think four Academy Awards. Has anyone seen that movie? Yeah? Pretty, pretty good flick. Uh, the difference with the Hollywood production, that's not at all what Daniel saw here. He didn't see a movie about two British track stars. He saw the real chariot of fire, the throne of God, as described. Now, today... We use Humvees, we use Bradley fighting vehicles, we use tanks and other mechanized uh, vehicles in ground warfare. But back in Daniel's day, the primary war vehicle was the chariot. So that was the primary battle vehicle of the day with a good set of horses out in front, even as many as uh, four at times. They were very, very maneuverable, but more than that, they were super, super fast. So the wheels of burning fire, you know, here represent God's posture in bringing devastation, war, if you will, in a sense, and also the quickness in which He can bring judgment upon His enemies. Obviously, if, it's, if what's playing out here is viewed as a chariot, it can get from point A to point B, meaning, spiritually, He can bring judgment quickly upon His adversary, upon His enemy. So, and, and we know that God is patient and long-suffering, but when His patience and long-suffering this runs out, judgment comes very, very quickly. He sits on a chariot that means speed, speed. Uh, and another phrase that's here, a stream of fire issued and came out from before Him. So not only is God's throne ablaze, but it actually shoots fire. Uh, you might say that it has a built-in flamethrower. Again, that's a pathetic, I don't know, maybe it's not a pathetic way to look at it because that's what we understand down on this side of glory, but this is like that. It, you know, fire issues forth from His throne. It comes out from His throne. And what does that mean? It means that in judgment, 
the fire is meant to come forth and consume, incinerate his adversaries, to destroy them, to burn them beyond anything else. So that's the idea here. In verse 10b, Daniel tells us that the Ancient of Days was not alone. He was not alone. This whole setting, it wasn't just him and some empty thrones. Uh, Look at it with me, 10b, a thousand thousands, kind of a tricky phrase, a thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. So how many people here are good at math? I don't mean iPhone. Well, yeah, well, no, it's a little more than that, but a thousand thousandths basically is what, a mil? So you've got a million there, okay? And, and here's what's interesting about this thousand thousandths. The reference is tied to Deuteronomy 33 too, and in that scene, you have all of these angels, you have this million angels who accompany God and assist Him at Mount Sinai when the law was mediated to Moses. So... This particular, because there's two different groups of angels here, this particular group of the million appear to be part of God's legal team, if He has one. They were present on uh, on Mount Sinai when God issued, gave the law to Moses. So these angels are special angels that serve in regard to the law of Moses, the law of God, maybe legal in a legal sense. They could be maybe the ones that are seated on the smaller thrones who help him judge. I don't know. We don't know. And then 10,000 times 10,000 equals what? Yeah, 100 million. And you don't even have a phone in your hand. I'm so proud of you, son. We'll get your mom to buy burgers after lunch. I mean, after church. Um, tell her it's your reward. She told us earlier we couldn't do it, so that's why I'm trying to get in there during the sermon. Uh, yeah, a hundred million. So what, what is the scripture telling us about this scene, about this vision? What it's telling us is that there are myriads upon myriads of holy ones, angels in heaven. And here we see them all gathered around the throne of God and, and some are standing before him. Uh, they have basically gathered to witness divine court. That's why they've assembled. Now, some are, you know, they're all worshipers of God and some serve in various capacities. But in this setting, this is, this is the largest court audience ever, right? You, have, you always have people that come and watch court and, you know, sometimes they're not even related to what's playing out in there. That's just weird that you'd want to spend your day down at the county building. But you have people that are in the back there to witness, sometimes family members, others. I've seen it. I look behind me and there's a ton of people back there and I'm like, I have to go up there. This is going to be really weird. Here you have myriads upon myriads of angels that are present who are standing before this God who literally appears as a consuming fire seated on a throne of fire, on a chariot of fire with fire shooting forth out of it. What a a scene this must have been or will be, I should say, apocalyptic, right? 10C, Daniel described what plays out next, 10C. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Okay? Phrases, the court sat in judgment. Okay, so the purpose of this court is to render a judgment. 
It is to try and render a judgment. Not try to render a judgment, but to try a case and render a judgment. Which judgment is in view here? If you have a little bit of knowledge of Scripture, you know that there's a a handful of judgments that are mentioned. I would say New Covenant, New Testament kind of judgments. You know, you've got the Bema, uh, which has to do with the church being judged by Christ. You have the great white throne, which is God judging um, everyone else. Uh, so what judgment is, is in, in view here? Is it the great white throne? It seems like it. Uh, we see that in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. I don't believe it is that one because what follows this judgment is not what follows the great white throne. Uh, it sounds like it. And I think that a lot of really well-intending scholars and people who study the Bible have spun their wheels not wheels of fire, they've just spun their mind wheels trying to figure out which judgment this is and trying to nail it down and trying to put it into a chronology. And that's not the intent of the text, but I'm intrigued. Where does this happen? When does this happen? What is it? Um, It's not the great white throne. I don't believe it is because that judgment is immediately followed by the eternal kingdom, and that's not what happens here. So I think that the judgment that's in view here is the judgment that takes place at the end of what we call tribulation period, which is immediately followed by the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ. So I think that's, there's going to be a judgment at that point, and I think that's what's in view here. It's, it's pretty befitting. But before a court can render its judgment, it must first examine the evidence, right? It's got to look at the case. It can't just say this, that, or the other. It has to do it. That's how it is down here. Apparently, that's how it works in heaven as well. So the phrase we're looking at, the books were opened. The books were opened. These books pertained to the issue at hand uh, and were connected with the condemnation of the little horn or Antichrist and his kingdom. So that's why I think they're associated with the tribulation period because that's when Antichrist has dealt the death blow sometime during that period. I think he reigns for like 42 months or something, so he's not in power for very long. But these books are not the same books that are open. They might be the same books, but the information that's studied and evaluated here, it doesn't have to do with what's evaluated at the great white throne. It's other information that's looked at, and it's pertaining to maybe the kingdoms of the world, more particularly the fourth beast, little horn, Antichrist. As Daniel looked on. He, you know, he's in the vision. He's looking at this. He's watching this stuff play out. He, he sees that the court is sitting in judgment and that they're looking at the evidence. Something catches his attention while this is playing out. Something actually distracts him. Look at 11a. 11a. He says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. Okay, so He's watching this thing play out. He's blown away. He's probably pinching himself. Oh, is this real? You ever had one of these vivid, crazy dreams? This one's at a whole other level. And then he hears this, you know, he hears this voice kind of appear. He hears someone speaking and uttering great words, as it says. This was the voice of the little horn, the voice of Antichrist. That's what distracted Daniel here during this scene. He heard uh, the sound of the great words the little horn or Antichrist was speaking. The great words he spoke here were 
not great words, uh, the way that we might think of them as being great, encouraging, articulate, profound, or anything like that. Don't get the wrong idea. Here, it has to do with blasphemous words. I think Daniel put great because he didn't want to blaspheme God by listing what he put here. And I tell you what, sometimes we describe things to people and we use the actual verbiage that somebody else did or whatever. We describe it in too much detail and we end up sinning. We ought to be you know, more careful with what we describe. We don't have to use the exact same. Well, he dropped an F-bomb, then we say it. Well, you just did the same thing. You know, so we need to learn from this here. He says great words. He doesn't want to say the same. He heard what the little horn was saying. He knew what he was saying. He was probably shocked. And instead of revealing what those things were, he says they were great words. But great here, the implication is not great in their quality. They were ugly, blasphemous words. And Antichrist, at this particular moment, his voice is heard blaspheming God cursing God, taking His name in vain, whatever, blaspheming heaven, the place of God, the throne of God, and blaspheming the saints. The reference to this is in Revelation 13, 6. That's where it tells us that His great words were blaspheming words, okay? And, and another thing that's interesting here, this was not a, a, it wasn't a recitation, a repeat of what he was saying. It wasn't an audio recording. It almost seems like, you know, it's like somebody hit a play button and you could hear the things that he's saying. That's what it looks like. He actually appeared in the vision and was speaking. So in the midst of this court case, you have, it's almost like as if one comes through the doors and starts cursing the one who's seated on the high throne, starts cursing him. That's how it's playing out here. Daniel could hear and see him. He knew who he was. He may have not known all the details, certainly what we know about him because we're so after the fact, but he knew he was this king that rose up and he was a blasphemous king and and all of these things. He knew some of the details about him. It could be that all of a sudden the little horn Antichrist appears in the middle of this tribunal that all of a sudden, boom, there he is, and he's in the middle. Maybe the court's round, and you've got all of the, you know, you've got the other judges here, you've got the throne of God, you've got all of the witnesses circling around it and around it and around it, and right in the middle of this thing, because that's how courts were set up back then. They were kind of circular. Maybe he appears right in the middle, and what he's doing is he's blaspheming and cursing the throne. Crazy. That's usually where the accused stood, right in the middle. Now, just consider the law of God. What does the fourth commandment say? Do not take the Lord's name in vain, a.k.a. do not blaspheme. Okay, blaspheming God can have more to do with just taking His name in vain and using those terrible words that I hate. Every time I watch a movie and it's there, I just, I just turn it. It's like, I just want to hear it. I can deal with a lot of profanity. I'm, I'm used to it. I've worked in secular forever. My old boss is here. He knows what it's like. You know, but there are certain profane words that I just have zero tolerance for. And there's a, I mean, just an explicit warning in Scripture, at least in the Ten Commandments, bare minimum, not to take the Lord's name in vain, not to blaspheme Him. But it can have to do with taking His name in vain. It can have to do with maligning His character. It can have to do with saying things about Him that are out of line, not just taking His name in vain. It can have to do with any of that stuff. 
And here, the Antichrist is characterized by blasphemy, okay? And the fact of the matter is he will be just like, because he's future, he will be just like his father, the devil, who curses God and curses heaven and curses believers and curses holiness and curses all of these things. That's, is he his literal father? Well, he is in a spiritual sense. And Satan himself, you look at Revelation again, is the one who gives him power and the ability to do these things. But he'll be just like his father, Satan, who curses God endlessly, who curses the saints, who curses heaven. And the fact of the matter is when a person takes the Lord's name in vain, when a person blasphemes God, he acts just like the Antichrist. One of the things that gets me is that when I hear someone uh, who claims to be a believer when they take the Lord's name in vain, that's just like, wow, you know, there's, there's a hundred things you could say that would still get my attention, but you went to that one. That just has never made sense to me. And, and believe it or not, there are some out there who profess Christ that take God's name in vain all the time, you know? Uh, they may just say his son's name really loud when they stub their toe. See, I'm trying to be like Daniel and not say it out loud. That's blasphemy. That's, that's an illicit wrong reference to Jesus. So it, when, when we, if we, are in the habit of doing this, we are acting just like Antichrist. And we are making the devil smile, and that's never a good thing. And, and, and most of all, we are angering the divine judge. We are angering the divine judge. Even when his children do this, it angers him. It, it doesn't just disappoint him, it angers him. So we've got to be real careful with that. And that's Antichrist. You know, when he emerges and comes out, that's one of the things that he'll be known for. He will be a constant blasphemer. He'll blaspheme God's people and everything else. And I think he's going to do it openly and publicly, and he's going to have no shame, no fear at all. And so when you see a political leader rise up that does that, have you seen one yet? I've seen all of, all of our presidents have been semi-careful, with the exception of a handful of more recent ones. I haven't heard them blaspheme God out loud from their pulpit. Uh, but, you know, that's one of the things that you're going to notice about Antichrist. This guy just does not care, does not care. Very risky. Look at what Daniel saw next in 11b. <laughs> this, is like, this is like the greatest warning ever against blaspheming God. But it's way deeper and broader than that. The implications are huge. 11b, as I looked, the beast was killed. <laughs> And his body, its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Daniel witnessed the judgment of God fall upon the beast, the little horn, quickly, instantly. It, and it's interesting that the Antichrist was in the midst of blaspheming when it happens, when the death blow comes. He was immediately killed or executed uh, Revelation 19, 19 through 21 corroborates. It tells the similar story. Uh, the Apostle John who wrote there had a very similar vision with uh, additional details and stuff. It's very interesting on your own time if you want to read that. Revelation 19, 19 through 21, it corroborates. This basically is the moment right here when this death blow is struck. This is the moment 
that the stone not cut by human hands, which we read about in Daniel 2, this is the moment where it basically, remember the visual we were given there in that vision? It flies in and it destroys the feet of Nebuchadnezzar's image, which represent all the kingdoms of earth, namely the fourth and final kingdom. So the execution of Antichrist marks the flying in of that stone who is the chief cornerstone, Jesus, who strikes the death blow to the final earthly king, kills him, and then that sets up a whole new list of things that, that start to play out. I would say it like this. The execution of the little horn, the Antichrist, signifies the end of the current world system and the end of the time of uh, the Gentiles, which actually started Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And it ushers in or it shows us uh, a new beginning, and that's the beginning of the millennial kingdom of Christ. So when Antichrist is slayed, the kingdoms of the world will fall, and a new kingdom is established, and that's the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the millennial kingdom. So all of that's packed into this death blow. Pretty crazy. Look at our last verse, verse 12. Verse 12. I need to drink. Sounded like I was at a bar. I need a drink. Just need a little coffee to wet. I don't go to bars, just so you know. Don't get the wrong idea. Um, I've been asked to DJ at bars, and I say no because it's like I just don't think it's a place for me to be. But anyways, I have no idea why I'm telling you that. Uh, verse 12, I'm going to have to have Dan back there say, okay, that doesn't matter, so just keep going. <laughs> he did that last week. I appreciated that after I hated him for 13 seconds. Um, I never hated you. Uh, verse 12, this is it. Look at this. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. What an interesting verse. Daniel, uh, through the vision, was given a glimpse of what would happen to the other beasts, the other kingdoms, right? Because you had four beasts that rose up and they represented other kingdoms. And so here he's given a glimpse of what would happen to them. You know, what would happen to Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Macedon, if you will? They would lose their power and dominion, but threads of each one would continue, okay? Threads of each one would kind of continue on. Now, what does that mean, that their lives were prolonged for a season, that their threads would keep going? I mean, what does that have to do with? I think it's a reference to the descendants of these kingdoms that would continue to live on after those kingdoms were brought to an end, and more particularly, the descendants who will be incorporated into the millennial kingdom. Because the millennial kingdom is, it consists of people from every tribe, tongue, and every kingdom and all of that. So you've got all of these different people from different tribes and kingdoms or whatever that are kind of continuing on. So the power is removed from these kingdoms, but their descendants will kind of continue on. It could also refer to the succession of evil rulers, kings, and dictators that will follow. Uh, what it might mean is that those kingdoms are destroyed and those kings are destroyed, but there will be many more like them throughout history until this judgment, you know, until basically, uh, man, it's going to be until the whole world is set right by Jesus Christ. So I think it might even be a reference to evil rulers, kings, and dictators that will follow. Just think about it for a moment. Here's kind of the lineup, right? 
Nebuchadnezzar, that's who we started with, he becomes a Darius, right? Who becomes an Alexander the Great, who becomes an Antiochus Epiphanes. He's not mentioned here, he's mentioned later, but he's a ruler that came after those rulers. Who becomes a Nero? How many of you have heard of Emperor Nero? He was just like one of the worst. Who later, 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 later becomes Hitler, a Hitler, right? A Stalin. Many people don't understand that Stalin killed many, many Jews. He killed more people. He killed, I think, twice as many people as Hitler, and he gets almost no focus. Um, so, so, you know, these kings, there's, there's a succession, right? You have one evil king, then another one arises, then another one arises, then another one arises. Since Daniel's day, many kings and kingdoms have been characterized by the beastly, you know, the beast-like qualities of power, lust, immorality, brutality, right? I think that's what's implied here. Their power and dominion was removed, but there'll be many more like them that will bear the same characteristics. In fact, it's going to get worse and worse and worse till it culminates with Antichrist. Now, just consider Daniel's position here. This is all out in the future for him when he gets this vision. Babylon is in power. Medo-Persia and you know, Macedon have yet to rise to power. Well, they were in power, but they weren't at this level of power. Rome hasn't come. Antichrist certainly hasn't come. So this is all out in the future for him. Uh, We, however, stand on the other side of history. And three of the kingdoms, those beasts, have already come and gone, right? They've already come and gone. Uh, In terms of power and influence, you know, Babylon and all that, I mean, it's just not even around. It's gone. Some of the most powerful nations the world has ever seen, Assyria, all of them, they're gone. Babylon, gone. Medo-Persia, gone. Um, You know, the Macedon of that era, Greece still exists today, but not in its kingdom form where it dominates that whole area, gone. The Roman Empire, if it's even being pointed to here with the fourth beast, gone. They're all gone, but we can see how their tentacles have stretched throughout history and into our day, can't we? We can. We still have evil kings that are in that long lineup of evil kings. I would say this, just as a rule of thumb, the beasts of Daniel 7 are present wherever Jews and Christians are persecuted. That can be a rule of thumb for you. So what I don't want you to think of is that these beasts are all come and gone. We know that one of them is still to come, the Antichrist. But for the most part, you need to understand that those beasts are present and represented every time persecution breaks out against Jews and Christians, every time. So what does that tell us? The beast is alive and well in North Korea. The beast is alive and well in Sudan. The beast is alive and well in Iran. The beast is alive and well in innumerable countries where Christians are slayed, where Jews are persecuted, right? So they're still with us. I think that's how the ultimate dominion and power is removed, but the threads of them continue on until God judges them all and brings it all once and for all to an end. And Antichrist has yet to come, but when he does, he will be the last great persecutor of God's people. He will be. He will be like the last great one. And maybe that's when God sets it right, right around that moment there. I know that there's some interesting things that play out in the millennial kingdom later on, so you can't go too far with this stuff. Uh, but for the most part, Antichrist, he will be the last 
and greatest big-time persecutor of God's people. And his day in court is coming, all right? I mean, that's, that's what we're looking at. We know the outcome. We know what happens to him, don't we? We do. We do. We've been looking at it. Closing. One of the things that struck me um, here in this text is the imagery surrounding God's throne. Uh, That's the thing that I kept going back at and looking at over and over and over and trying to do research on. Uh, Just the imagery of, you know, that imagery is something that just, uh, I don't know, it's incredible to me. And it's just something that I kept going back to. You know, you've got the the fire and you've got the, the wheels of fire. You have the stream of fire that issues forth from the throne. You've got the myriads of angels. You've got the judgment playing out. You've got the books being opened. And I think one of the things that's so startling is the lightning quick execution of Antichrist. Just just ponder. I mean, it's just instantaneous. And just ponder what it takes for one kingdom to conquer another kingdom. Thousands and thousands of lives. Millions and millions upon millions in resources. Probably years and years. These kingdoms were huge and walled in. I mean, it it would take years and years for one king to conquer another. Thousands of lives, millions in resources, right? That's what it takes. And here we see that this king is struck down probably with a word. God didn't have to march in his military to take this guy out. He struck down like nothing, nothing, with a wink, death. It's just mind-blowing to me. So I think what we're looking at in, in, in many ways is a terrifying scene. I think it is. I think that we think it's kind of cool and neat and all that, but I mean... Consider what's playing out. Fire, judgment, books being opened. And you've got to know that Antichrist isn't the only one who's going to be judged in this manner. And this is not, it's not a cartoon. It's not G-rated, PG-rated, PG-13. This is, this is heavy, heavy stuff that we're seeing in this text. Our passage describes the throne of God as the place of judgment, as the place of sentencing, as the place of destruction for the enemies of God. The enemies being any and all who are not in Christ. But notice how I said enemies. For believers, it is way different. Jeremiah 17, 12 describes the throne of God as a sanctuary. Okay, you you can't go in and worship the Lord when you're on fire. So the throne of God is described as a place of fire and judgment, but it's also described as a place of sanctuary. What happens in a place of sanctuary? A place of sanctuary is a place of safety. It's a place of worship. Psalm 1611 describes the throne of God as a place of joy because it's in His presence. 
where joy is forevermore. Revelation 7.15 describes the throne of God as a shelter. Hebrews 4.16 describes the throne of God as the place where we, His people, receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. It says, approach the throne of grace boldly and make your petitions known. Well, that doesn't sound like a throne of fire. Approach the throne of burning sulfur and fire carefully and make your petitions known. That's not at all what the text says. It's a throne of grace for the people of God. And it exhorts us to approach it boldly as we make our petitions. So the throne of God is twofold. It's really more, but at least in my description here, it's twofold. It is the place of judgment and terror for God's enemies and the place of safety and joy for God's people. If we are in Christ Jesus by grace through faith, we do not have to fear the throne of God. The judgments of Scripture are not our judgments, not these judgments. There is a judgment that's for us, but it's not like this one. These fiery, devastating, destructive judgments are not our judgments. We will not be in line with Antichrist, nor will we be be among the dead at the great white throne. We will be with Jesus, the Son of Man, and we will return with Him to help establish His kingdom. In the meantime, we should live our lives in a way that is pleasing and glorifying to God. Um, The imagery and what we've been looking at is still meant to sober the saints. God is serious about sin, and He's serious about His people when they engage in sin. He doesn't deal with us the same way that He deals with the blaspheming Antichrist, but it's still serious. We still need to revere Him. We still need to honor Him as best we can. We still need to glorify Him as best we can.